if you're a large company, let's think about what it is you really think makes startups innovative. Those are the things you can borrow. Create a sense of urgency. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, is sitting down with Gary Pisano, author of Creative Construction, The DNA of Sustained Innovation. And this is a book about how large companies can construct a strategy, system, and a culture of innovation that creates sustained growth. Gary is a professor of Harvard Business School. He joined the Harvard faculty in 1988 after earning his PhD at Berkeley. In today's episode, Ben and Gary discuss how organizations learn, innovate, and compete. And these are fundamental questions that Gary has been exploring throughout his career. Today, you will learn the four archetypes of innovation, Gary's definition of a business model, and who in the company should own business model innovation, the importance of candid feedback and getting out of your comfort zone and more. Enjoy the show. So Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As I was saying to you before, I I absolutely loved the book. I think what's kind of special about it is it's obviously very instructive about how to do innovation in the face of uncertainty and imperfect information and everything else. But it's also, it also challenges and debunks a lot of our kind of received wisdom about innovation, including the central idea of constructive or creative construction. How do you define creative construction? For a company, it's it's like rebuilding the house as you're living in it. So for established companies, you know, the knock on established companies is that they are so consumed with their existing businesses, they can't do true innovation. So this book tries to debunk that myth and provide some ways in which bigger companies can do that, but they, they face challenges obviously, because they have existing capabilities, existing businesses. So creative construction is really the, the, the art, if you will, of balancing the need to, to maintain the existing business, but then explore and create completely new innovation opportunities. So it's, it's different than a startup because a startup gets to s- start from scratch, but larger, more established enterprises can't. So I guess that's how I would define creative. You know, creative construction is that, that act of or that art of you know, searching for transformative innovation opportunities all the while maintaining your existing business. Even though it's harder for large companies to innovate and they have this sort of treadmill effect of, you know, a constant a bar that's been constantly raised, they nonetheless do have many advantages when it comes to innovation, right? So as you say in the book, you know, they've got, you know, resources that startups can only dream of and they can actually have a sort of portfolio of different innovation projects they can work on at once and what what other advantages would you say that large companies have when it comes to innovation i mean they have a lot of skills and capabilities uh, uh, you know that often get overlooked but just things that are in some ways written off as blocking and tackling but they're incredibly important so logistics and distribution and a you know sales force that can cover the world and 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 knowledge about you know regulations and experts in the company some the expertise in larger enterprises is actually quite deep i mean in a small and i've been involved in a lot of smaller companies and you get great people but you're smaller so you don't always have the world expert in 
you know, a particular market or a particular technology. So you're always trying to reach out. But but in a larger company, you, you actually do have a, a pretty deep bench. And so there's people to draw from that are that can be extraordinarily helpful in, in all facets of innovation, whether it's the technology or the commercialization, the supply chain, the marketing. And I think that, you know, is often that's often overlooked as 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 well in, in thinking about their their advantages. Do you think one of the most dangerous tendencies with strategy is to apply sort of inductive logic? You know, this idea that, you know, just because a company over here did something in a certain way and it worked for them, therefore it must work for our company. Because as you say in the book, you know, there is no kind of magic formula for strategy and there are no universal sets of, of best practices for innovation. So would you say that's a really dangerous kind of road to go down that idea of because it worked here, it must work there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to be thoughtful. You can use analogies, and people have written about that, and we all use analogies to to reason in all, all aspects of our life, and including business and including strategy. But you have to be thoughtful about how those analogies apply and what, what is applying, and, and, and most importantly, what is, what is different. A lot of times we focus on what's the same, but we don't focus on what's different. And I I tell this funny little story to my to my students about this because they often don't get the the analogy and and I'll say well I play a game I have a my daughter's now four but which I play this game with her called are you a bear and I'd say to her are you a bear and she'd say no and I'd say well do you like honey and she goes yes I said well bears like honey I said do you like to swim in the water she says yes I said well bears like to swim in the water I said do you like tuna fish she said yes I said well bears like tuna fish I mean you know you you. You like to you like to play outside. You like to, you like to do all the same thing bears do. You must be a bear, right? And that's the analogy of focusing on what's the same, and, and that's it. And we laugh about it, but that's what companies do all the time. They they look at what is the same and say, well, this is the same, this is the same, this is the same. Therefore, we must be the same. But it's like no, you have to look at what's different. It's a kind of a logical flaw that is so commonly made in in strategy making. And, and so, yes, you do want to use analogies, but you want to be really thoughtful and then understand what's different here. And then how do we, you know, how do you adapt your strategy to what's different about this situation? How would you describe an innovation strategy? It's a commitment to really, at a very simple level, it's a commitment to how you're going to spend your resources or focus your resources on the kinds of innovation you're going to go after. You know, I always say strategy is where you spend your money. And an innovation strategy specifies very clearly, here are the top priorities we have for how we're going to innovate, the kind of innovations we're going to do, and this is where we're going to place our chips. At, at a very simple level, that's what an innovation strategy is. At a more nuanced level, it's also the kinds of the kinds of value you're trying to create, the similarities or the pattern of how you're going to address the market. So, for instance, Apple has historically focused on ease of use. That's been part of their whole business strategy, but it's they have historically tried to innovate to make things easier to use. Some companies have focused on safety, and that's been a pattern over time. Now, it's, it's tying the innovation strategy to the business strategy, but it, but it creates a clear set of priorities in everyone's mind about what's important and what's not important. And you say, uh, look, I'm going to quote to you quite a bit from your from your book. But one one of the quotes I liked was you said, "Without an innovation strategy, innovation improvement efforts easily become a grab bag of much touted best practices." What exactly do you mean by that? Just that they're sort of completely unconnected. 
Yeah, I mean, think about today. You know, you go into a lot of companies and you say, how are you approaching innovation? And they say, well, we're doing open innovation. Uh, we're doing crowdsourcing. We're doing design thinking. We're doing empowered teams, you know, and, they, and these are all perfectly reasonable practices, but it's like building a car by taking a bunch of components, really good components, and just throwing them down and say, well, but that's not a car. That's just a bunch of components. You're connecting those practices to the kinds of innovation you're going after. So, for example, design thinking is great, but it doesn't work for all kinds of innovation. And so if your strategy is about a different kind of innovation, don't do design thinking. Open innovation is terrific for certain kinds of innovation, but not for others. So you have to ask yourself, is that the right tool to solve the strategy problem we're going after? Why do you think that happens, though? Do you think it's just because there's sort of external pressure, or you know, maybe from shareholders or, or, or you know, the board to be doing something? And so it's very easy to sort of demonstrate that you've opened up a, an innovation lab or whatever. And, and so that's almost sort of placates some of those external parties. And it's in reality much harder to come up with this integrated innovation strategy. Well, I, you know, I think it, it's partly that, but I think it's partly, look, we, we all want simple solutions to complex problems. You know, I probably fall into this trap myself when I think about my workout regime and what I'm reading. And I want the, tra- I want the perfect training program to get me ready for a, a marathon with as little help, with as little effort as possible. <laughs> you know, is there the once a month training program that will have me ready to run the marathon or something? I think we all, at complex problems, we want uh, simpler solutions. And I understand that, you know, executives are busy. There's a lot of pressures. There's a lot going on. So that kind of magic bullet, that universal solution is very appealing. And then what ends up happening, you have people who sell these to you. So, you, you know, not to be cynical here, but there are consulting firms who make their money selling you a particular tool. And so they'll say, this is, you know, design thinking and, and they'll, and then it's like, it, it all seems so easy. If you just adopt this, your problems will be solved. And, and I think what I try to do in the book is get folks to realize, look, it's a lot harder than that. And, and, and as I mentioned in the book, look, innovation is hard. That's the value of it. If it were easy, everybody could do it. And if everybody could do it, every company would be innovative and it wouldn't be a source of advantage. You know, there's a reason companies like Google and Apple have market caps. I don't know what they are these days because the market's all over, but, you know, close to a trillion dollars because they're innovative and other companies have been less innovative. And so it's never going to be easy. But, you know, I hope to make it a little easier or maybe not quite as hard. And 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 so I think we have to dispel. I think I think if you go into the innovation journey with that sense of this is actually not easy at all and we're not going to sell it as easy. And it's going to take a lot of concerted effort, and we're going to have a lot of stumbles along the way. But it's our strategy to get there, and we're going to keep focused on it. Then, then I think you stand a reasonable chance. In in the book, you you include a an innovation landscape map, right? Which I found it to be really, really useful. Right? Can you can you quickly just talk us through that innovation landscape map? Sure. Yeah, and it's based on not just my research, but many, many people have worked on you know, trying to characterize innovation in, in the field for, for decades now. So this was really a, a synthesis of, of both my thinking and many other people's thinking around, uh, you know, we often think about innovation in terms of the technology and the technical dimension. So, you know, how, how big of a leap is this technologically for us? Are we a hardware company that's now forced to do software, et cetera? But there's this other dimension, which I think we've learned about in the last 20 years, which is, wait, there's also a business model dimension. So a lot of innovation is not about the technology. It's about the change in the business model. 
And so you kind of put those together and that's how you get the two by two of, is this a big change from a technology point of view or not? And is it a big change from a business model point of view? And I think where that gets helpful is you get these four kind of archetypes of innovation, uh, routine, radical, disruptive, and architectural. You can at least start to understand or or have discussions about what is it the lever that we're going to push on? Are we pushing on the technology dimension? But but because we think our business model is actually quite strong, but we need better technology or new technologies to reinforce it. Or is it the problem is that our business model is obsolete and we need to radically change our business model and and do more disruptive things? Or is it a combination? And, And I actually think the combination gets interesting is I think many times we fail to realize how technological change has implications for business model. We we, yep. we graft on a technology on our existing business model when in fact the technology changes what we can do from our from our business model point of view. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things I really liked about that that map is it, it sort of gives almost equal importance, right, to business model and tech, which is not something that normally happens, right? And I suppose one of the questions is, you know, if, if a company should be constantly assessing its business model in the same way, you know, constantly assesses the adequacy of its technology, you know, whose job is it within an organization to be looking constantly at business model? Because it seems a bit like that's you know, a, a blind spot. Mm. You've hit it right on the head. I mean, you know, if you ask in any company who's in charge of technological innovation, they'll point to, they can literally point to a person. They could say, you know, uh, so-and-so is the head of R&D. So-and-so is the, the, the executive vice president of R&D. They ultimately have responsibility. Uh, then if you ask the same question around, well, who's responsible for business model innovation? You'll either get no one or everyone, which actually means the same thing. And so you're right. I, so no organization really has that. I think that's why senior executives, senior leaders, general managers really need to own business model innovation. So just like the way you think about the vice president of R&D or the head of R&D owning technological innovation or being responsible for it, I think the business unit leader the general manager, the CEO, they own business model innovation. And, and I, and, and I think that's the only solution. I don't, I'm not for, I I think you can have groups that help you do it, but I wouldn't want to set up a separate group called business model innovation because it's, it's really is so part and parcel of everything the company does that I think it just belongs in the hands of the, of the general manager. That's, that's just an opinion. People haven't really done a lot of research on it, but that's, I think organizations that are, that are good at, at evolving their business models, it's really they do come from the general, the general management, the, 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 you know, the CEO or the business unit leaders. It's sort of considered best practice to spend, I don't know, like 80% of your R&D budget on routine bets versus, you know, versus 20% that should go on more radical bets or whatever, that there's some sort of, you know, like predetermined formula for for deciding which of these boxes to concentrate on but in in reality you what what you say in the book is that the circum you know you need you need to be very careful making that allocation because the allocation looks different for every company what, what are the sorts of what's the sort of counsel that you give to companies about where to to invest the, you know a, across this map yeah and while there's no universal kind of you know formula there are some things you can think about there are some factors i mean certainly one is you have to look at your your kind of core technologies and really understand their headroom for improvement. So some technologies are, you know, they've been around a while, they're running out of steam, you, you know, you're running into diminishing returns in improving them in ways that would create value for customers. 
that's got to worry you, right? I mean, that's as you start to see that, and and you can map some of these, you know, actually quantitatively, if you have certain performance dimensions, and you can look at incremental improvement and ask yourself, how are we, you know, how much more can we improve this? You sort of see this now happening in semiconductors, and you know, as as you reach, uh, you know, the incremental line width reductions and 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 Moore's law, and you say, you know, how much more power can we get out of this? with the given technology we have, you can start to see these things somewhat in advance. The second part, though, is really on more of the market side is what do customers want and what are they willing to pay for? So sometimes technology can improve, but the customer's not willing to pay for any more functionality there. They're saying, I've got enough. I use the example in the book about, you know, the Gillette razor and how much closer, you know, do we want to shave? And, and you know, I won't pay that much more for a closer shave. Because at some point, I can only shave so close before it's scary. Uh, so, but I will pay for convenience. You know, I will pay for, for, for other things. So you, you have to look at that dimension as well. Where are you in the, the kind of market cycle? And, and then, you, you know, you have to look at competitive dynamics. What are competitors doing and how are competitors changing? So, you know, several, several of those things kind of come together to help you plot out where you may want to lay your chips and say, look, the opportunity for us to create an advantage and create value is maybe more on business model innovation than technological innovation. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's really our business model is is pretty rich and, and has got a long way to go, but our technology is not able to deliver it. Or maybe you discover in this analysis, look, it's both. It's it's we can't, if we push the technology in a certain way, the only way we're really going to create value is by changing our business model. And, you know, that would then get you to start to do experiments with your business model as well. And do you, do you think it's harder for a company to change its business model than to change its tech? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the business model really gets to um, a lot of the kind of core DNA, the financial DNA of the company. And business models are, are in some sense, promises to others. So they're, pro- they're kind of a promise to your customer about what's the value we're going to create for you. It's a value to your shareholders, about the value you're going to distribute. It's a value. It's a promise to your employees about the value you're going to distribute to them. In some sense, a business model is really a set of contracts. I don't think it's ever been formally posed that way. And my my economics training is in a branch of economics, essentially contract theory. In fact, Oliver Williamson, who who just died, uh, uh, the Nobel Prize winner who just died this past week, who started transaction cost economics. That's essentially what I was trained in. I was a student of, of one of his students. So I always tend to think about things contractually. And a business model really is a set of contracts, implicit, if you will, promises about the value you're going to create and capture and distribute. And a business model change means changing those promises and there can be costs to changing those promises. Your shareholders may say, well, we, we don't like that. That's not what we signed up for. Or employees may say, that's not what we signed up for. You may have unhappy employees. And that can get costly if you have to make changes there. And sometimes customers don't like it. We're, we're living this now in education as we, in the last few months, had to shift a lot of things online because of COVID. Our customers, our students were like, well, we didn't sign up for online. That's not what we paid for, right? I think you're hearing this around the world. Students say we yeah. we signed up for a different experience. Our our value pro- that's a different value proposition. And and in in some senses, like, do you, is it also harder to spot when your business model is becoming obsolete? Because, you know, in a, in a way, you know, if you if you spot that there's a big technology trend coming, you know, like, you know, cars are being elect- electrified or whatever, like that, that you have some time to react, and that's yeah. you know, and you and you can sort of map out 
you know, how that might impact your business. But in some ways, it's like, it's more difficult to get the early warning sites that, that your business model is not optimized, right? So how, how does a company, you know, check in and sort of routinely sort of test the, the continued sort of, you know, op- the, the, whether its business model is, is, is optimized? Yeah, and I agree. I think it can be more challenging. I think you know the the, the work of my late colleague Clay Christensen really b- bore upon this, and I think he, he highlighted this issue around why companies were vulnerable. You know, disruption was really, as he described it, was business model disruption. That's why I call that the business model quadrant disruption because that's what he he was really the one who identified that phenomenon where it's the business model change that companies can't react to. And I think you know he had some things to say about that, which I think are still very relevant. For example when you're, you're missing certain segments of the market or certain segments of your customer base are defecting that don't seem profitable. And you say, well, we don't need them anyway. Uh, that's always a little warning sign that, that, that he mentions that when you've got customers that you, he, he, I think he would describe it as you fire those customers, you said, well, we don't need you. We have more profitable customers. That can be the beginning of a vicious circle. You know, I, I think you're seeing some of this in some areas today. But again, an example I use in the book is with shaving. And I mentioned before Gillette and competing against players like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club. I mean, they're offering a different value proposition. And I think initially the folks like Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, you know, they were viewed as, yeah, we're just taking the customers who are less profitable for us anyway. So who cares? But, you know, then it starts to grow and, and, and then it starts to become a bigger segment of the market. It, it's not that it happens really fast. It's actually the opposite. It happens really slow <laughs> until it doesn't. So it's like the boiling frog, which is, yeah. you know, we start losing a few customers. We're like, well, I don't even notice that. So I think you do need to track fairly carefully what's happening with, with customers, but also like who are the customers you're not addressing? And are there segments of the market that are, that you've never thought about addressing that might actually be might actually be quite attractive and to, to others serving them in a very, very different way. When you see that, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of suffering from that kind of Clayton Christensen type disruptive innovation, you know, where somebody's come from underneath, you know, almost in your blind spot and then starts to sort of take market share. The, then the natural conclusion is to sort of, as you put it, eat your own lunch or to cannibalize your own business just before that, before the, before the new competitor can. But Another another section of the book I really really liked was was the one where you sort of challenged that notion that it's always best um, you know to eat your own lunch and it's and I found myself when I was reading thinking okay I've also been guilty of this many times and sort of kind of lazily thought that okay it's always best to to cannibalize your own business why is it not always a good idea to do that so one of the problems with cliches like that is they 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 grossly oversimplify in ways that can really blind us. And, and so there's really two reasons why I think that advice doesn't always hold up. So, so one is, as I point out in the book, these things, these disruptions, whether they're business model disruptions or, or radical changes in a technology base that make your technology obsolete, they tend to look a lot more obvious in retrospect than they did in prospect. So the advice of eat your own lunch before anyone else, you know, assumes you have some foresight that most of us don't have. And so there's lots of examples where companies have abandoned technologies that, you know, had, had lots of room to grow and, and, and they, you know, they, they committed the opposite error. You think about IBM was being told in the eighties, get out of mainframe computers. Well, mainframe computers today are, you know, process 90% of the world's transaction. And they are the workhorse now, you know, we're talking about big data and and AI, it's all mainframes. You need a lot of, you need big iron to do that. 
that IBM has that. So it's a good thing they didn't get out of that market. It's not what that, that market isn't what it was relative, to, you know, to the sixties. It isn't what it was then as it, to now. I mean, it, relatively speaking, it's smaller, but it's still a good market. I mean, it's still a very big market and, and it may get bigger. In fact, it's very likely to get bigger. So uh, that's a trouble I have with that is it gets you out of thinking about hedging your, your technology risk. But then the second thing is, and it's more troubling, is that even if you do that perfect foresight and something's happening, there are often profound implications for profitability. There's this assumption in the eat your own lunch argument that the new thing that comes along is somehow got to be more profitable or as profitable. And there's no law of economics that said there's no theory in economics that said that there's no empirical evidence. That's not necessarily true. And so an example I give in the book is when digital photography came along, digital photography hasn't been profitable for anybody. I mean, it's just been a bloodbath because the the components are commodities. They're out there. Anybody can get them. They're modular technologies. And it's a bloodbath. And so if you were Kodak and you had perfect foresight, it's not it's still not clear to me what you would have done to say, let's get out of let's just let's get out of our really lucrative film business to dive into this market, which is going to be a bloodbath. So sometimes you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And what I try to offer in the book is just some ways to think through those contingencies. So, you know, there are times where, look, there's, there's sometimes where the technology is changing or the business model is changing and it's, but it's going to be good for you anyway. So you might as well embrace it. That's not eating your own. I mean, in some sense that's eating your own lunch to get an even better dinner, right? I mean, that's just a better future. But sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the technology is changing or the business model is changing in ways that are really not, there's just not going to be profitable for anybody. It's just, it's a, it's a lot more complex than just, let's just dive right into the new thing and eat our own lunch. Do you think it's really dangerous when CEOs kind of consult futurists? Because the futurists, you know, I, I don't know what the, the record of the futurists are in terms of, you know, being able to successfully predict the future, but I guess it's small. And yet, nonetheless, you see this sort of proliferation of these people. And so, d- is that is that one of the things you advise is just, you know, avoid futurists? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I, I, yeah, I think I sort of say that in the book. I take a real shot at futurists because um, they tend to look back to all the time. And and the bias of somebody who's a futurist is to tell you how about the future, the world's going to be different. You're not going to hire yeah. a futurist to tell you the world <laughs> Same. So, in some sense, you're you're getting a biased view. You're you're already by bringing in a futurist, you're basically pretty sure to know the world is going to. Ch- you're going to be told the world's going to change. The world always changes. So, I think that's that's true. I mean, we know that. That's just that's that's the world will be different tomorrow than it is today, and it'll be a lot more different further out in the future than it will be just tomorrow. I think you should listen to people who have interesting and provocative things to say about the future. Absolutely. Because they may stimulate your thinking in ways that you hadn't before. So I actually, let me walk that back a bit before every futurist (laughs) uh, sends me nasty emails. Some of these folks that I've interacted with, they're very, very, very smart. And they do have provocative things to say. I don't necessarily think they're right. And I don't think the value of what they have to say is in the prediction. So if they say, something's going to be the case with electric vehicles. I, you know, don't bet on what their vision of the future is, but listen to what they have to say as a way just to challenge your own thinking about what the future might hold. And I do think it's a helpful exercise for organizations and people to constantly be thinking about that and disciplining yourself because you're trying to prepare. And it's not that you can predict correctly. Most of the time we get things wrong, but we can start to prepare ourselves and understand where the contingencies are 
and what we might do today to prepare ourselves. And, you know, to, for example, right now, all businesses and universities and schools are going through this. We don't know. It's a short-term thing. But what's, what's the COVID situation going to be like in the fall? Should we be online? So we don't know. So the best thing you can do if you have the resources is prepare, create options, build flexibility, because it's going to have a high payoff. Choosing one or the other now when there's uncertainty is not a good investment. Investing in flexibility when uncertainty is high is a really good idea. So that's where I think it's helpful to be listening to futurists and others and, and challenging yourself and listening to scientists. And, and, and I guess I'd have to say my bias is more to listen to people who are content experts rather than than futurists talk to customers farmers could probably tell you a lot about what's going on in the farming world i mean they they live it and so go so go go talk to them go watch them go watch how people live go you know and again it doesn't hurt to start to imagine some futures as a way to stimulate your thinking but just be careful to not confuse that with a prediction or a scenario up until now we've talked mostly about you know, putting in place an innovation strategy. What you say is there are sort of three parts to, to innovation, right? The, the first one is the innovation strategy. And then the second part is the innovation system. What is an innovation system and how does that support an innovation strategy? Yeah, the system is really the way you start to execute. Uh, that is really how you, at a very simple level, your innovation system is how you search for ideas, how you combine ideas, what I call synthesize, and how you select. So it's really the the, the, how do you go from ideas, find the ideas, digest the ideas, and pick the ideas to go forward with? It, so it's really the more now you start – I don't want to call it internal because sometimes you're involving lots of external people in it. But it, the system provides the capabilities to execute that strategy. Is the key to finding great ideas this – what you call in the book intellectual arbitrage or, or, you know, or, or surrounding yourself and, and maximizing the number of inputs to every decision? What I meant by intellectual arbitrage is just exposing yourself to ideas and people who you don't normally get exposed to. We tend to talk to people and the experts in our in our particular business without thinking about what others from very different fields might have to say. And they have different ways to look at the problem. And that can stimulate, you know, really interesting ideas. And sometimes they're technology ideas. So we see things move across fields all the time in terms of technology, but sometimes it's business model ideas. You know, an interesting one I just came across most recently and some new research I'm doing is during World War II, during uh, wartime production in the U.S., car companies were, which were, knew how to do things with mass, produ- mass production, but did not know much about making airplanes, were actually asked to make airplanes, B-29 bombers. Aircraft companies knew a little bit about making, knew quite a bit about making planes, but didn't know anything about mass production. Actually, learned a ton from the air from the auto companies about mass production. So they didn't use. I mean, in the 1930s, airplanes were not produced with mass production techniques at all. I mean, they didn't even have inter- some of them didn't even have interchangeable parts. And so it's a great example of learning across sectors. They were kind of forced into it into this sort of artificial setting, but they learned from. You know, automobile. In that case, the aircraft companies learned from automobile companies a lot about production techniques. And I think those examples are out there in all sorts of settings. We see today in healthcare for a while. You know, healthcare companies trying to learn from manufacturing companies, hospitals trying to learn about quality procedures from companies who do manufacture cars. 
And and again, one has to be careful because analogies break down sometimes. They're always perfect, but there is learning. And so the idea is, can you expose yourself and expose your organization to a, a broader and richer mix of people? Now, you mentioned about lots of input into the decisions. The only thing there I'd be careful about is you don't want to paralyze yourself either. So I'm not a big fan of having, I'm a big fan of having lots of input into decisions, but you need a decision maker to make the call and move forward. But I think in terms of exposing yourself and getting ideas on the palette of the organization or on the radar screen, you really do. I think most organizations need to broaden where they look and who they talk to. You know, I'll take an example from my own world in education. I think we have a lot to learn from companies in the entertainment business who produce fantastic content online, right? Who produce fantastic multimedia content. And we're, you know, we need to learn more about that. We don't talk enough about to 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 people in Hollywood or or the movie industry about that, how to tell a story. Maybe the cases become more like that than they become what we write down. I mean, be interesting, you know, we 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 don't normally think about that as a as a party we would we would talk to. But I, I certainly know that in my own experience as an academic, just interactions I have with people outside, I'm trained as an economist and I work in a business school, but interactions with physicists, interactions with people who do, you know, artificial intelligence, scientists or biologists, that's where I suddenly get interesting ideas that connect back to my own field. So it can be very, very stimulating. What you're saying is that, you know, you want to, you know, if not like maximize the number of inputs, at least you want to be exposed to sort of, you know, to, to different fields, right? Dis- different disciplines. And at the same time, you know, you make the point in the book that innovation's very infrequently linear, right? As in, the, as in the, you know, it goes perfectly from sort of problem identification to solution. How does one sort of build a system when the process is a bit random? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, it, so the outcome is, is randomness, but the approach itself has to be very disciplined. And I use the analogy of, of you know, evolution in, in life forms. Evolution as a process produces a massive variety of, of, of outcomes. It's very innovative. We get everything from the smallest amoeba to the largest sequoia trees to humans, you know, complex forms of life. And yet, if you think about evolution, it just works as a very, it's a very rigorous process. It just, it works the same way all the time. It's just, is a, you know, a few sets of letters in the genetic alphabet and there's some rules for, for how things combine and, and replicate. And, and, there's not actually a lot of variance in the process, but there's huge variance in the outcome. And I use that analogy to think about in organizations and in innovation is we want variance in the outcome. We want we want the kind of breakthroughs. But to do that, we need to have a very disciplined and rigorous and repeatable process of design, you know, design, build, test, you know, test, iterate, design, test, iterate, design, test, iterate over and over and over again. And you need organizations to have not just that mindset, but you actually need processes to do that. So I think that sometimes gets forgotten. It, it, people feel like that's bureaucratic, but it's actually not. And when you look at how really great scientists work, they work with very strict discipline uh, and rules. And same with artists. They work with really strict discipline and rules that they follow. The outcomes vary, and there's creativity in the, in the outcomes, but they, they're often exceedingly rigorous and exceedingly disciplined and regimented in their approach. 
I'm not suggesting this is an inconsistency, right? But on, on the one hand, you, you suggest in the book, right, that you can't just take a large bureaucratic organization, break it into smaller parts, and then to quote you, it becomes sort of magically endowed with, with entrepreneurial spirit. You know, that's a fallacy, right? But at the same time, you say to do innovation well, you need soft structures, you need temporary teams, um, you need project teams. So what's the difference between, you know, decomposing an organization into small parts and running project teams or small teams? Yeah, and, and again, nothing wrong with small teams, and I, I like small teams, and you can do them in big companies. But what I think the the point I was trying to make in the book was that that many times companies confuse a what is a cultural problem for a structural issue. So they say we're bureaucratic and we're slow. So let's break this down. Let's attack it structurally. Let's make this smaller units. And now suddenly we're going to be like a startup. And the answer is no, you're not. You're just going to be smaller versions of your old bureaucratic self. It's actually hard to recognize what you can't replicate about a startup. So startup life, and I've been involved with startups. I've been a co-founder of a company. I've served on the boards of startups. Startup life is is consumed with the fear that you're going out of business (laughs) because you're generally running on fumes in terms of resources and cash. and, And so you are focused on one goal. And it's sort of surviving. And and the people you attract to the enterprise are extremely comfortable with the ambiguity that they may not be in business the next year. So you select in people who are very comfortable with that calculus. If you're in a major corporation, if you're in a, a, if you're in uh, Microsoft with you know twenty plus billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet, you're not going anywhere next year. That I think changes some of the tension and pressure, and you cannot replicate that in a large company. If you're a large company, let's think about what it is you really think makes startups innovative. Those are the things you can borrow. Create a sense of urgency. We see that in large companies today. It's fascinating what's going on there. Big companies are being forced to be very urgent because their their worlds got changed dramatically. You know, look, I come from an academic institution that's you know, well, as a university, Harvard University is three hundred and fifty years old or something, and Harvard Business School is a hundred years old, and. We had to go online in a two-week period. Our students were on spring break. And when the university president said because of COVID, we could not have classes in person, it would be it would be risky and irresponsible. And so we had to, in two weeks, figure out how to deliver education online. I, I think if you had said to me last year, could that happen in a two-week period, I would have said no. But it had to happen. So we made it happen. That's the sense of urgency you can get. So in a big company, you can do it. And we, we've been seeing this happen. So that's what I encourage companies to do is forget the whole startup thing or not. Focus on the key attributes of innovative cultures. And that, those are some of them. When you talk about culture in the book, you, you talk about you know the paradoxes of, of a innovative culture, right? One of the ones you say, and this is a great quote, right? You say, when it comes to innovation, the candid organization will outperform the nice one every time. I suppose the question here is, how do you stop candor becoming aggression? Yeah, great question. That is, and that is absolutely what you have to do. I mean, you have to watch for it. If you're, if you're the senior leader, this is where you have to just be really attuned. And you have to watch the visual cues. Uh, a little harder these days if you're at remotely, but you, you've got to be able to if you're in the room, watch the body language of how people are reacting and, and be prepared to step in. And, and, and you have to model it yourself, that delicate balance of this being incredibly treating people with, with incredible respect and dignity, but being very clear about what you think is, you know, a, a good idea, what's working, what's not working, how things can be improved. It is a delicate balance. And, and, 
in an organization where people are passionate, which is what we want them to be, we can emotions get involved. And we know that emotion can can get the best of us at times in a negative way. So I think as a leader, you have to be really comfortable with 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 stepping in and be able to pull somebody aside and say, look, you know, look, Ben, you know, you were a little rough on, you know, in that meeting. You gotta sort of back. I get your point, but you might have ventured into you were just brutal, not brutally candid, which is different. Yeah. Make sure people that is we've had the good argument, we've had the good, we've 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 thrashed this problem out a hundred different ways. And now we are going to, you know, we're going to move forward and we're still, you know, connected. I, I, I think you have to build good personal relations between people in the company. So you need, obviously, any candor with respect. But if you don't have the candor, then you're just going to move too slow, right? Because you're going to be too nice and you're not going to get to the point and you know, the whole sort of pace of change will be too slow. Is that it? Absolutely. And, and you move candor to solve problems. You know, problem solving is, uh, is, requires candor. <laughs> it's how do we make this better? You have to tell me what's wrong with my idea. If I gave you a book of mine to read my next book, I gave you the manuscript. You said, great job. Great job. Yeah. You just don't want to hurt my feelings. That's not going to help me. But if you said, look, you know, I'm going to be frank with you. Here's, this doesn't, you know, here are three points with the book that don't make sense at all. Or I, 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 I don't understand, or they're badly written or you know, they don't add anything, whatever. And you were clear about it. I might not want to hear that. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to hear that. But the only chance I'd stand to make the book better is actually hearing that. You know, we, that's why candor is so critical to innovation. It's cre- It's for any creative process and, and particularly for innovation, it's extraordinarily important. There's another great quote I loved from the, from the book, right? Where you say an, an organization chart gives you a pretty good idea of the structural flatness of a company but reveals little of its cultural flatness yeah how do you live a sort of culturally flat organization that's where the leader's behavior is everything what are their expectations of you and others and their role and how much autonomy they really give you so in some organizations leaders make it clear that they want to be involved in every decision so i don't care what the org chart looks like it's not flat and they're going to get involved with every detail and they're going to, you know, people are going to learn and be conditioned over time that you better ask the boss before you do anything. In other organizations, the leaders say, look, here's the direction I want to go in. I think I've made it pretty clear, the general direction or the principle or the strategy. It's really up to you how you do that. And it's really within broad latitude. I just want you to go forward. And if you need my counsel, I'm absolutely willing to provide you that counsel and help you. But don't feel you have to ask my permission. So there's clear boundaries about where you have to ask permission and not. I trust you. And, it, and it's like, you know, trusting people to make decisions and then giving them feedback on those decisions later. T- two other sort of paradoxes I wanted to pick up on. What One is um, this idea of, you, you call it tolerance for failure, but no tolerance for incompetence, right? If you're going to do experiments, you know, you have to be allowing competent people to do them, right? Organizations which are innovative have really high standards on people. So they, they draw a distinction between Look, something failed because biology got the best of us or physics got the best of us or what, or the market yeah. change, you know, that was, we tried something new. They draw a distinction between that and just, you know, we were sloppy. We did bad design. We did bad engineering. I didn't motivate my team well. I didn't, I didn't listen to people who were giving me impact. That, they, they view that as like, that's incompetence. We're not going to tolerate that. Innovation is hard enough. So I think that's an, and that's a harder edge. Everybody loves tolerance for failure, but as organizations start to talk about, look, we're also not going to tolerate incompetence. 
that's a scarier environment to be in for a lot of people. You also talk about how, you know, like there's, you know, it's sort of a given that experimentation is good, but you argue very strongly that, you know, if you're going to experiment, that's that those experiments needed to be bounded, need to be bounded by a sense of like, A, what they're going to teach you and and B, how much you can afford to lose through those experiments, right? So it's, you know, where, what are we experimenting? Why are we doing this? And then we're going to generate data. We have to treat the data as sacred. We can't just run an experiment, look at the data and say, well, that's not what we wanted. Let's move on. Let's do something else. Let's do this. Let's keep doing it. It's you have to ask yourself if you're getting results that you didn't expect or that are are less than optimal. Why is that? What's going on? And learn from it. And that's the discipline. And and I think there's got to be a real discipline to experimentation. And everybody, again, loves discipline until that discipline is applied to them. One of the things you say in the book is, as a leader, you have to be great at strategy, execution, and culture. And what I wanted to ask you was, like, how, how many people does that apply to? And then do you think that kind of leadership only really comes in waves? You know, I don't know if you've ever read that Steve Blank article where he sort of says, you know, you get one wave where you've got you know, somebody who's great at innovation and they surround themselves by, by people who are great at execution. And then when that person retires or, or you know, leaves, then you have a period where the, the company kind of sweats the asset or milks the existing innovations. And then it's not until the next generation of leader that you then become innovative again. So, so sorry to ask such a long question, but do you think like it's really difficult to have those qualities in a leader? And do you think they come in waves? I agree with that observation. I mean, I do think they come in cycles. I think what happens is you do get the the visionary leader, the innovative leader, who then comp- surrounds themselves with people who are execution-oriented to kind of counterbalance them, which is probably a reasonable thing to do. But then the problem is those people become the heads of the company, and there's less innovation. And then the company gets in some trouble, and you get a you know a innovative leader comes back. I think Microsoft's a great example, right? I mean, I think they've gone through that cycle. How many leaders are good at strategy, systems, innovation? It's a great question. Probably very few. <laughs> Probably very few. I think that that's why innovation is hard. I mean, I, I think, as I say to leaders, it's your 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 task is threefold. You got to master strategy. You got to be good architects of the system, and you got to be good architects of the culture. But if they had to choose, I'd say, look, focus on strategy and focus on culture. Uh, systems, there's enough other people who can probably help you get that right. So focus on strategy and, and focus on, on culture. We're in a world now where like the pace of change is constantly accelerating. We're on a treadmill. And sustaining innovation is kind of like the new sustain, source of su- sustainable competitive advantage. Do you think that's fair? So i.e., like, this is, this is really what makes or breaks companies today. And therefore, the, the leaders that are good at this kind of almost deserve to be paid whatever they're paid because this is just so critical well so i, I want to be clear because in terms of sustaining innovation means clay christensen's used that uh, term sustaining disruptive versus sustaining so i'm not talking about sustaining innovation the way he did it's sustaining your capacity for innovation is critical i mean that is what is really i think the skill that is in scarce supply so it's not just being good at innovation it's building an organization that is capable of innovation. I think that's the fundamental difference. The leader should worry about building the organization that's going to outlast them. So the way you finish the book is you talk about innovation as agency, right? So we all have, you know, we all have a role to play in innovation. Is there a way for us to become as individuals, right, in a practical sense for us to becoming to become better 
at innovation and and also to make kind of our businesses more innovative? Yeah, absolutely. Look, innovation starts with yourself and organizations. You can't say I want us to be innovative. I'm not innovative, but I want other people to be so. So you, you kind of have to own it yourself for sure. But I think how do you do it individually and, and in all walks of life? Kind of go back to some of the things I talked about in the book. Expose yourself to a wide range of people and ideas. So get out of your comfort zone. Get yourself in contact with people you're not normally talking to. I think that's probably the most important thing. The second thing is get comfortable yourself with experimenting. And and I think we're all, you know, trying things and learning from them as an individual skill, getting comfortable with that. I think is a prerequisite for having your organization be comfortable with that. You know, there's lots of these things individually you can practice. I mean, you can practice candor, you know, and learn how to do that and challenge yourself to to start to follow some of those cultural attributes. Get yourself comfortable with receiving candid feedback and and you know, not taking it too personal when your ideas are criticized. Learn how to do that. And again, I think some of it is get yourself in situations where if you're outside your comfort zone in something you're doing individually that you're not going to be very good at and that you're going to fail at it and you're going to learn to that humility that that comes from it. I took a drawing class two years ago. I'm a terrible artist, but my wife is an artist. So she was taking a drawing class and I took it and I failed a lot at it, but that's okay. I mean, I think there was, it's no fun to fail, but you you actually realize, look, failing at things isn't so bad and that's innovating requires that. So if you get comfortable with some of that yourself, You'll become a more innovative person in everything you do. But I think then as a, in an organization, you will be a better agent for innovation. Fantastic. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your insights from your books. Just to reiterate, Gary's book is called Creative Construction, The DNA of Sustained Innovation, and we highly recommend it. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.